0: Well, let's open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 8. Uh, Luke chapter 8 is where we are in our continued study of the Gospel of Luke and find, if you will, for me, verse 22. If you do not have a Bible, I invite you to follow along uh, on the verses that will be on the screen. And uh, if you do not own a Bible, I hope you'll let me know that. I'd love to give you one as you not only uh, study God's Word with us here collectively in our corporate worship, but also as you read God's Word on your own. So if you do not have a Bible, please, please let me know. And uh, we have some that we would like to give you free of charge. Luke chapter 8 and verse 22 The Bible says one day he, that is Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke. And rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house For he had only one daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. And Jesus went. The people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on the physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. In other words, how can we even know who's touching you? Everybody's touching you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. knowing that she was indeed dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be giving her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Afraid? Trapped? Overwhelmed? Impossible? These are all words that describe situations and seasons of life that we experience. And when we go through these fearful and hard and desperate circumstances, it is very easy for any one of us to be overtaken by them. Our faith shrinks and we become so focused on our fears, so focused on our challenges that we even unknowingly and subtly lose focus on who Jesus Our text today shows us who Jesus is. But it also serves as an exhortation that all of us need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Specifically, the Lordship of Jesus. The Lordship of Jesus. Now, whether you are new to church or here this morning trying to discover who Jesus is or whether you've been following him a long time, we all need to be regularly reminded, daily reminded that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. In fact, acknowledging his lordship is a prerequisite to receiving genuine salvation the bible says in romans 10:9 if you confess with your mouth that jesus is a good man is that what it says no it doesn't say that if you confess that jesus is a miracle worker if you confess that he's a good teacher No, no, the Bible says that if you confess that Jesus is Lord, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Acknowledging, confessing the truth that Jesus is Lord is a prerequisite to becoming a Christian. But what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Well, it means that foundationally, Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus has sovereign authority, sovereign control, sovereign jurisdiction, sovereign power. These are all wrapped up in the identity of his lordship. He is Lord in heaven. He is Lord on earth. He is Lord in this church. And he is Lord in your life. Now, whether you actually believe that or not, this is what God requires of every one of us to acknowledge. Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, he said, It is at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the will of God. For everyone to bow the knee to his lordship. For everyone to confess that he is so sovereignly in control, possesses sovereign authority, has sovereign jurisdiction over our lives, and has all sovereign power. So if Jesus has, as Lord, has authority, control, jurisdiction, and power, then that truth comes with non-negotiable implications. It's not enough to just say Jesus is Lord It is to yield our lives to the implications that Jesus is Lord. So first, understand that true faith in Jesus is submitting to his Lordship. True faith in Jesus is submitting to his lordship. In other words, if he is your savior, he is your lord. But if he is not your lord, he is not your savior. There's not a dichotomy in Jesus' identity that he is a savior for all but not a lord for all. No, he is lord and he is savior. You cannot deny his lordship and accept his messiahship in your life. It means that true Faith, true faith, is more than wanting him to be your Savior. True faith is wanting him to be your Savior and submitting yourself to him as Lord. It also means that as Lord, Jesus owns us. As Lord, Jesus owns me. He owns me. I know you don't like that. And that's why many people reject the gospel. They don't want to be owned. But the truth is, Jesus owns me. And because he owns me, he has the right to tell me what to do. That is an implication of his lordship. It also means that nothing happens by accident. Everything that happens, listen to me, everything that happens is by divine, sovereign purpose. Why? Because He's Lord. His Lord. His finger is in everything. He's Lord. And it also means that as Lord, there's nothing He cannot do. There's nothing he cannot do. In fact, class, let's say that together. You ready? There's nothing he cannot do. Everybody now, or I'm going to make you to come stand up here with me and say it. There's nothing he cannot do. Now, it's that last implication that I want us to key in on from our text. There's nothing he cannot do. He's Lord. And I'm calling you today to set your eyes and to keep your eyes on the lordship of Jesus because, indeed, there's nothing he cannot do. In fact, we see, first of all, he can calm our fears. Whatever our fears are, that's the first thing we see in our text. He can calm our fears. It picks up at verse 22. One day, Jesus gets into a boat with his disciples. Now, while sailing in that boat toward the other side, it's noted that Jesus falls asleep. Now, I love this picture of Jesus. In his humanity, he was exhausted from the busyness of their ministry. Mark's gospel says they were so busy, he didn't even have time to stop and eat. So by the time he gets on this boat, in his humanity, he's purely exhausted. He needed a rest. And in my opinion, there's no better place to take a nice little nap than on a boat cruising the waters. That's what Jesus decides to do. Now, those of you who have visited the Sea of Galilee are already picturing this in your mind. It's not a large body of water, about five miles wide, 13 miles long. But its location is extremely significant. Scientists tell us that because the location of the Sea of Galilee is under sea level and it's surrounded by large, intimidating mountains, it makes that body of water significantly subject to sudden rises of violent windstorms. And that's what happened. Verse 23 says, and a windstorm, a windstorm, it's it's, it's a hurricane-like wind. It came down on the lake and they, that is the boat, was filling with water and all of them were in danger. So, so this storm, it was, it was unexpected and it was violent. I think it's important to know that some of these disciples were professional fishermen. And I tell you that because this storm was not their first rodeo, so to speak. They were experienced sailors who knew how to handle these situations. It's even possible that they've been trying some of their own techniques to survive, but to no avail. Maybe Peter in his lifetime has taught a few classes and seminars on how to ride the storms through the Sea of Galilee. Regardless, on that particular day, they all believed they were going to die. Regardless of their experience, regardless of their profession, regardless of the fact that they had been through storms before, on that day it was different. On that day, the storm was so violent, so unexpected, they all thought they would die. And I wonder this morning if fear like that has ever gripped your heart. Fear gripping your heart so violently you didn't know how you truly survive. Well, they wake Jesus up from sleep, not with a, sorry to bother you, Lord. I know you're in the middle of a nice little holy dream. And, but uh, we could use your help here. We're, we're dying. No, I don't imagine that at all. I imagine they rush to the bows of the ship where Jesus was laying. They rush to wake him up. They're screaming with cries of fear. They think at any moment the ship could capsize. It's all recorded for us by Luke in saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Lord, Lord, we're dying. Now, spoiler alert this was a setup. It was a spiritual setup. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over creation. He's Lord over nature. The winds and seas obey him. He may have appeared to be disconnected through sleep, but he was in absolute control of that storm the entire time. It's a good reminder. That storms indeed are part of our spiritual growth. They're God's way of deepening our faith in His identity, in His power, in His grace. Storms come into our life because God allows those storms to happen. Storms shake us with great fear at times because Jesus permitted it. It wasn't that he was asleep and this caught him off guard. No, in his divine essence, he was asleep and brought the whole thing up at the same time. He's Lord. Everything obeys him. And it's a reminder that in every season of life, there are lessons to learn about Jesus. That's what I want us to focus on, the lordship of Jesus. And sometimes we go through things. It is important that as we go through those things that we learn lessons about ourselves. But let us not forget that many times it's lessons about God that he wants us to learn. What did those disciples learn that day? Well, they learned that he was indeed God. He had been teaching that. They would seen him do other miracles, but this was just another example that, hey, who you're dealing with, who you're following, who you are putting your faith in, I am God. He rebuked the wind and the storm stopped. Just as suddenly as it came about, he spoke a word and everything peacefully and Calmly rested right back in order. And in so doing, he was proving again, he's not just another man. This is God. They also learned that day that his word had divine authority. His word has divine authority. The winds and the water, the winds and the sea, the winds and the waves, it obeys him. I I could go so many different directions this morning, but let me just throw this into your mind for you to reflect and meditate on. Could it very well be that morning or that afternoon, whenever it was, that Jesus was once again showing his disciples, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to obey me like the winds obey me, like the water obeys me. Like the waves obey me. Isn't it a sad reality that nature itself at times teaches us how to obey God? They learned that day that His Word has authority. And it's not our idea or prerogative to determine whether or not we are going to obey that authority. Winds and waves obey Him. Therefore, brothers and sisters obey Him. They also learned that he can be trusted. Notice again what he asked them. Where is your faith? They were afraid. Fear had gripped them so violently they thought they were going to die. They didn't know how to survive this. But Jesus says, you can trust me. Whatever your fears are, you can trust me. Whatever you have in front of you today that you're afraid of, that you don't know whether or not you're going to make it through, you can trust Jesus. You see, this storm was designed to focus the disciples on the person and power of Jesus and to see that he is always the solution to every one of our fears. Afraid? Does that describe your mindset this morning of whatever it is that's in you or in front of you? Afraid? Fix your eyes on the Lordship of Jesus. He can calm your fears. Because He's Lord. He can do anything. He can calm your fears. Secondly, He can change your life. He can change your life. That's verse 26 through 39. So, continuing on in in the narrative, Jesus arrives on the other side. By the way, that's exactly what he said he was going to do. Let's go to the other side. Before the storm ever arose, Jesus said, we're going to the other side. The disciples doubted that for a moment, but Jesus always keeps his word. And where do they arrive? On the other side, just like he said. And immediately as he gets off the boat, he encounters a demon-possessed man. Now the imagery of this man is unique. Luke tells us that he was wearing no clothing and hasn't worn clothing for a very long time. He lived in a cemetery of all places. He was out of his mind. And we read in the story here that he was a community nuisance, even, even as they perceived a danger to them. I want to say a couple of things about demons as we work our way through this. Demons are not mythical characters. They are real beings. Who are they? Well, they are fallen angels who align themselves with Lucifer in his rebellion against God. Demons, if you will, are the devil's Minions. They work to enslave the mind and soul with spiritual darkness, and their work is very confusing. It's never the same. In fact, the Bible tells us at times they work through non-threatening, civilized ways. Paul in First Corinthians chapter or Second Corinthians chapter eleven described them as being angels of light that they disguise themselves as good things in order to fill the soul and heart with dark things. And and at other times, they work in a manner that is clearly dark and depraved, as we see here in our text. But once again, this is not so much about demons. This is about Jesus. It's about his lordship. He is lord over nature and creation in the the calming of our fears and the ceasing of the storm. And he is lord over demons. A couple things I want you to notice about this encounter. First, the demons identify themselves by the name legion. Legion. It's unique because a Roman legion of soldiers consisted of about 6,000 soldiers. So think about that for a moment. The Bible says he identifies himself as legion because there were many demons living inside of him. Kent Hughes commented on this reality by saying to the Jewish mind, legion brought an image of great numbers efficient organization and relentless strength so so he's identified as legion because there's a there's a lot of demons living inside of him and and i'll just say this one demon is bad enough but this man is absolutely battered with thousands of demons thousands of demons have possessed him but these demons regardless of their number regardless of their power, they acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. In fact, the text says that they beg Jesus, they they beg him not to send them to the abyss. The abyss is the place of final torment, the place that is ultimately prepared for the devil and his demons where they will be locked and bound for all of eternity in the last day. They know that day is coming. They don't want that day to come today. So they beg him, please do not send us into the abyss. It's another reminder that even demons understand that Jesus has power over them. In fact, James tells us that demons believe and they tremble, they shudder, they are terrified at Jesus' lordship. But Jesus wasn't here to make deals with demons, He was here to change a man's life. And that's exactly what He did. Jesus removed every single demon from this man and put them inside of a herd of pigs. I have a lot of jokes here But I am going to refrain I will ask though Why pigs? It's not really a clear answer We can speculate And you can do some homework To determine whether or not Even the geographical location Brings some of those speculations to reality What, what is clear though What is clear is that this was the day The pigs went crazy one by one, they ran to their death as they plummeted off the cliff into the sea where they eventually died. Now, now think about this. Jesus took thousands of demons, put them in pigs, proving, by the way, that some animals are demon-possessed. Yes. And here they committed suicide. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. But what about the man? What about the man? Well, everyone noticed that something had drastically changed in him. He was no longer possessed. He had been healed by Jesus, restored to his God-given image. Verse 35 says, he is now sitting at the feet of Jesus. He is now clothed, thanks be to God, and he is now in his right mind. This is total transformation. But let us not be surprised by this. Because look at me, this is what Jesus does. He changes lives, and he wants to change your life regardless of your addictions, regardless of your dishonesty, regardless of your sexual misconduct, whatever your sin is, Jesus is Lord. And because He is Lord, He can change your life by casting out those sins from your life. This man went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is how you know he really got it. There was no shame in telling people that Jesus was not only Lord, but Jesus is my Lord. He is the Lord who has changed me. Are you trapped this morning? Yes, I'm trapped. I got to go to the bathroom. I'm sitting in the middle, and none of these people want to let me out. (laughs) That's not what I'm talking about. Are you trapped? Are you enslaved? Are you held captive by sin? Look to the Lordship of Jesus. He can change your life, He can do anything. He can calm your fears, He can change your life. Thirdly, He can remove your shame. He can remove your shame. We pick this up in verse 40. Now now I wonder before we dive into this, is, is there something about your life that you don't want anyone to know about you right now? A secret. A shameful secret. Maybe it's a stubborn weakness, a humiliating failure, an embarrassing illness perhaps horrific past trauma, or maybe just even a present struggle with sin. Whatever it is, whatever it may be, it most likely causes you to feel a lot of shame. The section here begins with a man named Jairus. He comes to meet Jesus. He falls at Jesus' feet. He begs him to come heal his 12-year-old daughter who was dying. I can't even imagine that scenario. His 12-year-old girl is dying, and he comes to Jesus asking for help. And the compassion and grace of Jesus is that he chooses to go. And so he makes his way toward Jairus' house. But but it's not yet Jairus and his daughter who's the focus. Instead, there's a woman here that the camera zooms in on. A woman who's carrying a lot of shame. Twelve years she has suffered with a significant bleeding problem related to her anatomy. And because of the problem in and of itself, it was extremely embarrassing for her to talk about. On top of that, the blood problem made her unclean, both ceremonially and physically, which deepened her shame. And we can tell emotionally she's a mess. All of her money, everything she has, has been spent on doctors, most of which. Church history tells us, biblical history tells us, use means of superstition to try to cure her. All of it's gone and nobody could help her. The problem only got worse. Now there's no question that she has observed Jesus' healing power or in my opinion she wouldn't even be here. But the shame... The shame of her situation is that to approach Jesus like Jairus and so many others have and tell him what was wrong with her would require for her to share it in front of all these people. So, 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 so try, to, try to empathize with her for a moment. Is there something in your life that nobody knows about? Some shame, some shame that's hard to talk about, hard to speak up about. This is her. To go to Jesus and say I need healing because here's my problem means everybody's going to know her problem and that is embarrassing. So she comes up with a plan. Maybe if I just touch him, maybe if I just touch him, then power would transfer to me and no one would ever have to know about my problem. I wouldn't have to talk about it. It would just be fixed. I believe there was a little bit of superstition here, but nonetheless, Jesus will correct that in a moment. But the opportunity did come. She reached out. She touched his garment. The Scripture says the fringe of his garment, and immediately she could feel that her blood illness was no longer a problem. This is how much of a problem it was. She immediately knew it had been fixed. She could now go on her way. Jesus doesn't know. No one else knows. She doesn't have to talk about it. But then to her shock, Jesus stopped. And he looked around. And he asked loudly, Who touched me? Can you imagine what she felt? In that moment, she had to have froze. Even as others were saying, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. We didn't touch you. Nothing was being said. She, she didn't know what to do. Peter tried to brush it off, as he so often does. But Jesus insisted. No, no. Somebody touched me. I could feel power leaving my body who touched me and this is where the superstition changed the faith she finally spoke up and said it was me and in that moment she poured out all of her shame to jesus in front of everyone even the men about her problem and how that she was now healed The next moment was a compassionate, personal moment between he and the woman as he looked at her and said, daughter. It's the only reference that you see in the New Testament of Jesus referring to someone as daughter. It's intimate. You belong to me. Daughter, your faith, not your touch. Your faith has made you well go in peace now some of you wonder this was, this was kind of rude of Jesus why did, he, why did he stop everything and draw attention to her well he didn't do this to expose her shame he didn't do this to embarrass her he did this to expose her faith he wanted everyone there to know that regardless of their secret shame there is hope in him It's the same reason why we have the story this morning. God is asking the same questions to you, not to embarrass you, not to point you out, not to shame you, but to show you this morning that if you will look to his lordship, if you will put your faith in Jesus, he will remove that shame in your life. There is always hope, always hope in those who put their faith in Jesus. And as I've already noted, he wanted her to know that it wasn't the touch that did this. It was her faith that caused Jesus to pour out his power and grace on her life. And that's a great reminder as we go to the last point, that it is faith that pleases God. Faith is what releases the grace of God on our life. If you come to Jesus seeing and believing his lordship, he can and will remove your shame and give you his grace. So maybe like her, you're overwhelmed, shamed hurting. Look, friend, to the Lordship of Jesus. He can do anything. He can calm your fears. Whatever you're afraid of, He can calm it. He can change your life. Whatever is holding you enslaved, God can break those chains. And whatever you're shamed about, God can take it away. There's one more thing, and perhaps maybe to some of you the most unbelievable. He can raise us to life. He can raise us to life. So who did we start verse 40 out with? Not the woman, but Jairus. And he's been there the whole time, by the way. He's walking right with Jesus. After all, They're on their way to his house when this interruption came. An interruption that Jesus didn't mind coming. So he's witnessed the entire scene. I don't know how he felt about that. I could tell you how I would have felt, shamedly. I would have been anxious about my daughter. I'd be eager to get Jesus to the house as fast as I could. I'd have been antsy, wondering why she couldn't wait her turn. My daughter's about to die. I need Jesus with me. I I don't know if he felt that. I'm just telling you that's probably how I would have felt. And that dreadful news that causes so much of that anxiousness, It came. News that no parent wants to hear. Someone from Jairus' house came running to him and said, Look, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. It's too late. Now, now, you talk about a testing of faith. Think about this. While he is with Jesus, his daughter dies. So there's already a test of faith at whether or not he would even come and ask Jesus. He gets the courage to do so. Jesus agrees. They walk together. He he feels as if, hey, we're, we're making progress. This is where I'm supposed to be. I am with Jesus. Surely this is all going to work out. But while he is with Jesus, where he's supposed to be, the worst news he could ever hear happened. Friends, sometimes you can be exactly where God wants you to be and it all fall apart. That is what's happening here. His daughter, while with Jesus, goes from dying to dead. But Jesus looks at him and says, Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Just believe. She'll be well. So Jairus chooses to stay with Jesus. They walk together all the way to the rest of his house. And on arrival, the Scripture says he takes Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, along with Jairus and his wife, and they go into the house by themselves. He enters the room, verse verse 54. He takes the dead girl by the hand, and he says, Child, arise. And her spirit, look at this next word, returned, showing that she was dead. Her spirit had left her. But now it's returned, and she got up at once. Can you even begin to imagine the response and the celebration that took place in that room at that moment? Jesus had brought the dead back to life. Once again proving that his lordship can do anything. The scene is a foreshadowing of not only his own death and resurrection that was to come, but also the resurrection of all who confess Jesus as Lord. We read it in our scripture reading this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In Adam, because of Adam's sin, in Adam all die. But those who are in Christ, they will live. That's the gospel. Sin brings death. Your sin, my sin, it brings death, it brings damnation, it brings condemnation, it brings hell. But Christ brings life and forgiveness and resurrection and peace and joy and redemption and adoption and salvation. Everything that sin damages, Jesus in his lordship restores. Every Christian in this room has a resurrection story. In fact, when you meet somebody new this week and they say something like this to you, what's your story? You're not going to believe this. But I've been resurrected from the dead. They're going to look at you like they look at Chris Harrison. No, 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 listen to me. Every Christian in this room has a resurrection story. Paul kind of pinned it for us in Ephesians 2. I was dead in my sins, following the world, carrying out the desires of my flesh and my mind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the love wherewith he loves me, even when I was dead, He made me alive with Christ. He raised me up with him. He resurrected me from the dead. And by grace, I am alive. I am saved. Every Christian in this room has a resurrection story. And perhaps there's a resurrection that needs to take place in this room. No, we can't visit the cemetery and do it. But Jesus will do that one day. But right here in front of us, the dead can come to life. The spiritually dead who are condemned to hell can be resurrected to life if you come to Jesus. If you confess Him as Lord, if you believe that He died for your sins and rose again for your salvation, then He will bring your dead soul to life and you'll never be the same. Don't lose focus on who Jesus is. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. Regardless of your fears, regardless of your sins, regardless of your shame, regardless of any impossible situations that are in front of you, He is Lord and He can do anything. Look with me afresh today to the Lordship of Jesus and rest. Let's stand together for prayer.